Amen. Thank you, worship team. Have you ever been talking with somebody? Could be a friend, could be just an acquaintance, could be over coffee, wherever. And they tell you something, and then you're, and then you say something like this: "I had no idea. I I didn't know that. Or why didn't you tell me? Or I, I you know, have, raise your hand if you've ever had an experience like that, where somebody tells you something, and you're like, I had no idea. Friends, that's why the church exists. People." The truth is that some people go their entire lives and never share that stuff. I think because we live in America, we have that kind of minimalistic, what I got to do to get in kind of thing. You know? How many times have you ever heard somebody go, do you, I don't, I don't got to go to church to be a Christian? That, that just starts off, and that's the wrong question to ask. That stops on the wrong foot. That's going before God and saying, what do I got to do to get the bare minimum? Those conversations where people bear their hearts and they find loving people who take you as you are and show you the Lord and help you grow, that's why the church exists. I just hope, I just, but that's, that's all my heart this morning. When people share their lives, weaknesses, shortcomings, what have you, that's not weakness, that's just humility. I pray we're always a church that welcomes people sharing their weaknesses. If, if, we're, if we cease to be that, then we have abandoned compassion and love. And so what we're going to read today, we're starting our series in John. Got the Gospel of John, which happens to be, I don't know, I mean, I don't have, Philippians is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, but I would say John's probably my favorite Gospel. I, always, I say that with a little asterisk. I hate saying, I hate picking favorites since it's all divinely inspired. Um, but John is a book that I, if you're a new believer, I, you know, all the time people, you know, just come to Christ. I want to start reading the Bible. Where do I start? Read John. It's not any more inspired than any other part of the Bible. I just think John, as we're going to see, John has things, John has a way of describing Jesus that I just love, and I think everyone can love, because Jesus is never more divine, and ironically enough, never more human than He is in the Gospel of John. This morning I want to draw out this truth from the first five verses in John. When we say that Jesus is the Word, or as Robert Washington would say, the Word! <laughs> when we say that Jesus is the Word, and we say that He is the light of men, as, as John is going to say, we're confessing our belief that in Christ, God is recreating and restoring and speaking life into what was lost in the fall. Salvation in Jesus isn't just a decision you make. It's a decision that God made before the foundation of the world to resurrect you from the dead 
and to fill your darkened heart with the light of life and the knowledge of Him. So if you may, turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We're just reading, um, just reading five verses. So if you want to stand for the reading of God's Word... And I bet you, most of you know these words. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, shine your light into our hearts this morning so that we can see the precious truth that you've given us through your Apostle John. Amen. You can be seated. I want you, to, I want you all to remember one word this morning, and that is... The word deity. I don't know if we have a slide that says that. We're we're working on our slide game a little bit. Um, No, we don't have it. Okay. D-E-I-T-Y. Raise your hand if you ever heard that word. Deity. Okay. That word just means divine nature. That's all it means. Okay. Latin, day, means God. Um, So all it is, deity, is just godness. In some sense, okay? I'm going to be using that word. It's a word you should really know anyway because as, some, as people who are the people of God, we should know a word that really means Godness. So, God possesses deity or has deity. In the 1890s, there was a movement that many historians have called the Academic Revolution. Protestant universities and colleges no longer selected churchmen to head up their schools. Religion was pushed out from the sciences and humanities and it was relegated to the seminary. And the seminaries themselves started to adopt views of German higher criticism that questioned the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the virgin birth, supernatural elements of of Christianity were all um, under suspicion. By the end of the 19th century, liberalism was sweeping across most of the major denominations. And you can see this today. You can see the remnants of this. Did you know that Vanderbilt University is a Methodist school? Duke University is a Methodist school. Um, Yale University was started as a Congregationalist school. You look over the landscape of our country, some of the most prestigious Almost all of the prestigious schools started out as religious schools. And now the only way you can find the word God is at the divinity school. It wasn't always like that. University, university, that word, universal, was started as a word depicting that all of the sciences and all of the studies and all the branches of human life were under God. That's the where the word comes from. And you had this revolution at the end of the 19th century, and eventually you had the response, which was, this eventually led to the rise of something called fundamentalism. Raise your hand if you've heard fundamentalism. Okay, 
before we get into what that is, you need to understand that means something today vastly different than what it meant at the beginning of the 20th century. Today it means somebody who thinks people who drink are going to hell and who thinks that dancing is a sin. It's kind of a caricature now. Um, but that's not what it meant at the very beginning. A fundamentalist was a Bible-believing pastor, theologian, or a simple Christian who defended the quote-unquote fundamentals of the faith. There was actually a lot of articles and um, a lot of magazines and a lot of journals and a lot of conferences on fundamentals. What does it mean to be a fundamental Christian? As liberalism started to sweep in, and America started to divest itself from traditional Christian teaching, many, many, many conservative Christians started to get together and go, what, what, what do we have to believe? What do we have to stick to? And they started calling themselves fundamentalists, and they came up with the fundamentals, the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible doesn't have error. The virgin birth of Christ. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus' miracles, they really happened. And some of you might go, well, I mean, I think there's a little bit more than that. Well, that may be, but, un but back in the beginning of the 20th century, those were the doctrines that were under attack. And so you had the rise of fundamentalism. As Darwinism, naturalism, skepticism, atheism, things we take for granted today, as they started to creep into American life, it was these doctrines that came under attack and it was these doctrines that were most vigorously defended. And during this time, this titanic cultural shift that started to happen in our country, time and time again, conservatives leaned on the Gospel of John. Because perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, John presents and defends the deity of Jesus Christ. John leaves no doubt in his gospel, Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a man of virtue. He's not just a prophet. He is God Himself. That's unequivocal, unequivocal in Scripture. It may be difficult to imagine today, but for over a hundred years, Princeton University stood as the bastion of right Christian Orthodox teaching. Then at the beginning of the 20th century, it fell into liberal hands, into professors and presidents who denied some of the most basic teachings of the Bible. And it hasn't recovered since. But it was during this time of transition that a professor and scholar named J. Gresham Machen left Princeton in order to to start another seminary that still thrives today called Westminster Seminary. And he wrote a now famous book defending conservative Christian beliefs. And it's called Christianity and Liberalism. I just brought it just in case you've ever heard of it. I don't know if many of you have. Today it's widely known as one of the greatest defenses of conservative Christianity in the history of America. You know, old people, you can read old books, they're right. Um, you know, I was thinking the other day, Charles Hodge uh, spoke at a Princeton graduation about 100 years ago. He says, I'm proud to say that not one new idea has ever been preached at this seminary. And he meant that as a compliment. This is what J. Gresham Machen has to say in his book, Defending Conservative Christianity. Quote, unquote, 
In the Gospel of John, one does not have to seek very long. The deity of Christ is almost the theme of the book. He goes on. Yet the New Testament, with equal clearness, presents Jesus as a man. The Gospel of John, which contains at the beginning the stupendous utterance, the Word was God, and dwells constantly upon the deity of the Lord, also represents Jesus as weary at the well and as thirsty in the hour of agony on the cross. Scarcely in Matthew, Mark, or Luke can one discover such drastic touches attesting the humanity of our Savior as those which appear again and again in the Gospel of John. I love that. That's why I love reading the book of John. Other than Paul, no biblical author depicts Jesus in such lofty, high, and exalted terms. In the beginning was the Word. He starts off the whole Gospel like that. And yet, in this Gospel, Jesus is so remarkably human, as we're going to see. This is one of the reasons I recommend the Gospel of John to new believers, because John clearly conveys the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ in a way that few others do. When you're suffering, when you need grace, when you need the assurance of faith, when you're, you're in a season of trial, I really feel like the Gospel of John can be medication for your soul. And the reason is because Jesus is also, He's the one who walks on water, but He's the one who also stood in our place. We need this Jesus. Look at the extraordinary language in the first three verses. I'm just going to read them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was, that was actually made. So, in the beginning, what does that remind you of? Genesis. That's unmistakable Genesis language. John is mirroring the first book in the Bible. In the beginning. Anyone reading that knows where that phrase is from. The God who created the heavens and the earth in the very beginning is the very same God who is the very same Jesus who walked among men for 33 years. That's what God wants, that's what John wants us to know. I think it's interesting. I didn't know this until I was uh, studying this week. Did you know that John doesn't actually say the name Jesus until verse 17? That's remarkable to me. The Word, God, life, light of men, true light, the only Son, the one who ranks before me. God, John is going to great lengths to convey the gravity and the majesty and the transcendence of Jesus. We need this today. 21st century America, we have an increasingly low view of God and increasingly high view of ourselves. Gospel of John is a humbling gospel. We need a big God. For the last 150 years in this country, the deity of Christ has been slowly going out of fashion. The world is telling us now that Jesus was just a really good person. He was an inspired prophet. I actually read a book this week that said he was a leader of a social movement. He was an enlightened teacher. You know, even, even Muslims say, yeah, he was a really good teacher. And then you tell them what he taught, and they're like, eh, I don't like that. Meanwhile, we're still holding to the faith once delivered to the saints, and that is Jesus is the Word. He was with God, and He is God. That's what we confess as Christians. John is writing this gospel for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons is that during this time when he's reading, writing this towards the end of the first century, a heresy known as Gnosticism is running rampant. 
Gnosticism is kind of a parasitic heresy. It basically takes Greek Platonic philosophy and tries to mix it with Christianity. And basically what it believed, I mean, it's hard to really define one set of beliefs, Gnosticism, all different kinds. But there were heresies going around. One, one was that when G Jesus was just a really good person, He was a virtuous person who attained divinity and became God. There was one really common heresy at the time when He was writing this, that actually Jesus became God at His baptism. And Remember when the Spirit comes down and descends? There was a heresy running wild during the first century that... He, up until that time, Jesus was just a man, but it's then that He became God. Um, Gnosticism, as we'll talk later in, in coming weeks, also believed that all matter was evil. So to say that God became a man was just preposterous. Gnosticism also believed that there wasn't a creator God. God was more like an artisan who just took pre-existing materials and like created something out of it. John's Gospel is very clear. Jesus didn't become God. He wasn't just a really good person. He wasn't just a good teacher with a love for people. He is the eternal Word of God. The Greek word for word is logos. Any Greek person who would have been reading this at that time would have instantly known what that word is. According to Greek philosophy or Stoic philosophy, logos isn't just a word or the word. It means reason or wisdom. According to Plato, Logos is the governing principle that orders the universe and it's found in every man. And what John is saying is, yes, there is a Logos. Yes, there is a governor over all the universe, but it's not just some abstract idea. The Logos is a person. He's the very breath and the perfect expression of the Father and through Him the world was made. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. If I could ask you all a question, don't say out loud. I might have asked you this before, and I'll probably ask you again. Just think to yourself, because I asked, um, I think I asked uh, maybe my small group this question. If you had to, if you had to say what was the most foundational doctrine in Christianity, what would it be? The one that's just like the base belief. The one that you can't have. If we don't have this one, we don't have anything. What is the core? If it's possible, if you could, boil it down to the most foundation doc, foundational doctrine we have. The one that sets us apart. I think a lot of you all might be thinking, um, Jesus is the Son of God. A lot of you all might be thinking, um, the atonement. A lot of y'all might be thinking the resurrection, uh, the gospel. I think the most foundational doctrine we have is the Trinity. Because apart from the Trinity, you can't have the atonement. Because, of course, the, the wrath of the Father can't come on the Son. There can't be no sending of the Son. There can't be no sending of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is the most basic doctrine we have as Christians. No other religion on earth says that God is both three and one. And what John is saying is there is no creation without the Trinity because verse 3 says this, all things were made through Him, that's, G, that's the Son, and without Him was not anything that was made. So the, God the Father made the universe, but somehow what, God is, what uh, John is saying is He created the universe through the Son. Here's another question, kind of pop quiz. 
Now, hold on. I'm a, okay, think about this. Where was the Holy Spirit at creation? You think about that? Where was the Holy Spirit? Well, right there in verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Do you remember that? The triune God is there from the very beginning. The Father made the heavens and earth through the Son, Hebrews 1-2, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Can you see the symmetry between what God is doing at creation and how He saves sinners? There's remarkable symmetry there. Isn't it incredible to think that in every act of God, the persons of the Trinity are working in sync to bring glory to the Godhead and to save His elect people? The Father creates through the Son and preserves His creation by His Spirit. Then sin enters the world, darkness falls over creation, we become rebels, we're estranged from God, we're ignorant, we're blind, we're enslaved to sin. And then we see the triune God working again to recreate a chosen people. The Father calls and predestines His chosen people. They're saved and born again through the Son of God and He sustains them and sanctifies them through His Spirit. Do you see the glory of the triune God in our salvation? God is recreating us. He's undoing the curse and bringing life once again. Every single part of our salvation is secured by God in bringing us back from the dead. If you're found in Jesus today, it's because the triune God sought you, bought you, and sanctified you. I know this is heavy theology. Guess what? God is deep. He's three in one. Start with that one. That's why we need the Bible. I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Please listen to this one. Please try to prepare yourselves and listen. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's in creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? He's doing the same thing in salvation that He was doing in creation, just in a different way. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And what Paul is saying is that every single time someone has their eyes open to Jesus and every single time someone's saved, what God is saying is let there be light. He creates and He recreates. And wouldn't you know it, right after John talks about the beginning and the Word and creation, he starts talking about darkness and light. Verses 4-5. through five. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In order to understand who Jesus is and what He's come to do, John says we must see Him as the light that brings life. Just like He did in creation. This week, our uh, heater went out in the, in the, uh, the house. Um, I mean, it, it went out, it's been going out constantly, but this time it like went and died. Um, which was really good timing because it was really warm this week. Um, yeah. And uh, so Kelly went and stayed with her uh, aunt. The twins um, went and stayed with uh, her aunt in Kennesaw. So I went up there with them. We had dinner and I came back. And I don't know why I thought they were going to have it done in a day because I came home and it was like, it was freezing. 
and uh, I got out the space heaters, and everyone scolded me when I told them. It's like, why didn't you call me? I'm like, well, I was late. I didn't want to bother anybody. So there, I, there I am in my like hoodie with like on the couch, you know, with my with my space heaters. I actually slept pretty good, so don't don't pity me. I, I, I my wife can tell you I can sleep wherever. Um, and good thing was there wasn't any babies that get wake me up at two or three in the morning, so I had that one. Um, and I get up to like go to the pantry, and the light doesn't work. Then I try to turn on Netflix, Netflix doesn't work. So I don't know if we've figured out the Netflix yet. Have you ever had one of those weeks where just nothing works? Because that was just me. You know, three days. I'm, the, the, the Kelly, this is just an aside. The guy was from, a um, really nice guy. He's from Newburn. There you go. Which I found out is like in the country a little bit. This guy's really nice. But man, he is like homespun country. The guy's in my house for three days. Can't complain because he's giving me heat. But he's in my house for three days. And finally, I just didn't have the heart because he said he'd be there one day. And the third day, I'm like, that's okay. I was like, should I ask him when they're going to be done? So finally, I was like, I'm just going to go ask him. I was like, hey, uh, can I, y'all got a timeline? You might be done here. Just, just, you know, no rush, you know. Apparently I left. Kelly was like, hey, a guy thinks that, you know, he doesn't, you don't like him anymore. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so this guy spends three days, and I tell you, he was such a kind person. But it just, it, it, it reminded me this week that I am not self-sustaining. I'm not. I'm a 21st century person. I couldn't have fixed the darn heater. Had it not been for someone who knew how to, I'd have been rubbing sticks together and trying to make a fire. And not only when I'm not, a, I mean, I do know how to change a light bulb. Thank goodness. But it just reminded me one, God is continually reminding us that only God speaks and it is. When there was nothing, and then God spoke, and there was everything. You know, if Jesus were laying on my couch, well, one, he would have known that the light was broken, and it would have fixed it. But I'm just sitting there going, I'm so fresh, I'm going, oh, you know, oh, light, like, and I'm like, oh, where's the bolt? Of course, there's no bolts left. All right, good deal. You know, when God made the world, He wasn't flipping a switch. He said, let there be light, and there was light. That's the God we serve. That's the God we've entrusted our souls to. I'm just encouraged by that. When God created, created the world, it was filled with light. And when God makes, remakes a sinner, when God calls a sinner out of darkness, they're filled with light. There is no way we can foil the plan of God. This is why I, I just I, the thought that we can lose our salvation is so dangerous. Because it's almost as if what God's saying here is if someone can lose their salvation, it means that the light could have gone off in the heavens and earth. When God says, let there be light, the light stays. He's recreating you. 
He's resurrecting you. He's creating you anew. He's bringing new life. He's shining into darkness. We, it's time to get away from such petty, pitiful views of salvation. He is making you new. The Father elects us. The Son saves us. The Spirit sustains us. Can you see now the glorious Trinitarian plan? Every single person of the Godhead working intricately to accomplish your salvation. It's God. And, and, and these, these just pitiful, like... I, somebody the other day said, um, God made you because He was lonely. No! God didn't need us. You need God. If the Trinity, if we can learn one thing... For, I mean, if someone were reading, just think about it. Take away your cultural Christian background and just think about if you were reading John 1 for the first time and you're going... He was with God and he was, was, and he was God. Well, that's a typo because that can't be. You can't be with somebody and be that person. What John's saying from the very beginning of the gospel is you better believe it because that's the triune God. If you are in Christ today, you have the same chance of losing the light of Jesus as the heavens and earth did of losing the light of creation. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're reading from the ESV or the Holman or the NIV, your translation says overcome. If you're reading from the NASB or the King James, your translation says comprehended it. I don't often go against the NASB. I think the Greek word katelabin is best translated overcome. Because the idea is that the Son of God, whether in the universe or in your soul, is an overwhelming flood of light that consumes darkness. I really like the way the NLT... Who has New Living Translation in here, anybody? One of the very few times I will, I'm actually preferring the New Living Translation. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. I like that. We can't stop the light and the love of God. I'm a Christian today because God said, I'm going to love you even when you don't want to be loved. I think a lot of us have a testimony today. and I'm, I'm, This is like the best testimony I can hear when someone says, it must have been God because I know it wasn't me because I wasn't looking for Him. That is a testament to the flooding, consuming light of God that penetrates your soul and consumes the darkness in your heart. This morning, whatever you're facing, if you've stopped reading the Bible, do a lot of you struggle with reading the Bible? Do a lot of you struggle with getting up in the morning and praying or praying with your children? If a lot of you are doubting your walk with Christ or if you haven't felt closer to God, think about this. If the Son of God shined His light into utter darkness, and it went from being a void to glory in a second. Can He not speak into your apathy and your unbelief and your laziness and your, your busy schedule and make things beautiful? If Jesus is truly the very Word of God, the same Word that spoke into a giant void and created life, do you not think He can fix your life? I think sometimes people are looking for fixes and looking for... Uh, new thoughts or ideas and the same ideas sitting there right in front of us and John 1 says it. He's God. I think many of our, so many, almost every problem we have 
can be solved by looking to a big God. A big Jesus. How can we not entrust our souls and our lives and our families to a God who says, let there be light and there's light? And so I wanted to conclude with, do you all remember what Jesus says on the cross when He's dying? This just stuck out to me. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I just kept thinking, the God who created the universe feels forsaken. That's heavy. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, who is the light of men and the very life and word of God, suffered death and consuming darkness for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. We no longer have to walk in darkness because He endured and subjected Himself to darkness for us. Do you remember what happens when He's on the cross? Darkness falls over the land. I just kept thinking, if He is the light of men... What kind of sacrifice and love does it, have to, does it take to love people who don't even love themselves? So the last thing I wanted to, to call your attention to is this. John says in verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I'm going to repeat that. All things were made through Him, the Son, and without Him, the Son, was not anything made that was made. So God, the Father, never creates any one thing without the Son. Does that make more sense now when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, and what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Does that make more sense now? It doesn't matter if He's creating the universe. It doesn't matter if He's saving a sinner. God the Father will not create or recreate without the Son of God. As we go through the Gospel of John this year, these themes are going to come up again. Life, light, life, light. In order to have that perspective, we have to go to the cross where He gave up, the Lord of life gave up His own life so that we could have life. I wanted to end with the good news. I mean, the verse 5 says it all. The darkness has yet to overcome Him. Let us put our faith in the Word of God in the light of men. I, don't, I have to strive and I have to run the race and I have to persevere and I have to keep the faith. But I only do that knowing that He has a hold of me and since I've been born again, His light won't go out. You don't have to worry about that. That has to be your fuel as you live this week on Tuesday morning when you wake up on an average day and you're going to work or whatever you're doing. You have to strive and believe after God only knowing that the fuel you have, the faith you have, the energy you have comes from that little ticker life that will never go out. It is a match that will never be snuffed. That's where our faith comes from. And He promises us that if we put our faith in Christ, our eyes will finally see Him and we will have the knowledge of God in our hearts. Let us look to the Trinity and the beautiful work of salvation, God accomplishing every single step in both creation and recreation to claim His people. That's the depths of the love that God has for you.
Let that be our faith. Let us put our faith in a God who sought us and bought us and sanctified us. Let's pray. Father God, we pray to You in the name of Your Son, through Your Holy Spirit, as those who have been called out of darkness. Father, I know that it was by Your power that I came to faith, and it's by Your power that You sustain me even now, because I know that I don't have anything in me that could have come this far. Every mercy and blessing that I have in my life is because of the triune God and the kindness and the love and the grace and the mercy that You've shown me. Father, Jesus is the Word. And Father, I pray that You give us the faith to continually seek after Him and His kingdom first and that You would shine Your light all the more into our hearts so that we have the knowledge and the glory of Your Son, Jesus. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen.